Today on Behind the Headlines, we are talking about our continuing evolution around police community coverage and our sensitivities and the changing of language in that coverage. On today's episode, Marie Weedmeyer and Roberto Acosta join us on Behind the Headlines. As I said, our guests today, Marie Weedmeyer and Roberto Acosta. And my co-host, as always, who is uh, celebrating a birthday week. It's it's Heiner Graw this week. Uh, John Heiner, how are you, my friend? <laughs> I can test that. I'm still woozy from all that Geritol. Uh, <laughs> got, we got a little crazy at the Senior Center. Um, but no, thank you, Eric, for acknowledging that. It was a great time. Um, I went and hung with one, someone in my age group, Elton John, this week in Detroit. So so that that was pretty cool. We nice. both we both made it out alive. Uh, it was it was a lot of fun. Awesome. Good to be good to be back on behind the headlines. Good to be back here with you, Eric. Um, one of the most popular behind the headlines episode we ever had in terms of downloads and listens, uh, which also corresponded to my most read editor's column ever um, since I've been doing them for a few years, had to do with police accountability and how we cover crime in the wake of the George Floyd death in May of 2020. And uh, that was a watershed moment in American society. Um, It was a very polarizing event. The media coverage was polarizing, but I think the whole issue of uh, racial inequities and also uh, police interactions with marginalized communities is a very, very uh, uh, difficult topic for America. Uh, uh, race is a difficult topic for America. But we we looked internally, and uh, that death was in May of 2020. In July of 2020, I announced uh, that we were going to extremely limit the use of mugshots in, in police stories uh, because we felt, for a number of reasons, uh, it, it, it actually did not shed understanding, but it reinforced some stereotypes. Uh, it, it it was disproportionately uh, putting uh, the onus on um, minority communities. Uh, oftentimes, the people depicted uh, were not convicted, or the crimes were fairly minor. So, what really we were doing was was taking a step back and looking at our practices and whether we were shedding understanding, or rather, you know, further reinforcing stereotypes and. Had a very, very strong reaction from our readers, but I, I think we felt very strongly and feel somewhat vindicated two years later that uh, that was a that was a progressive and necessary step. While this flash forward to the spring in April, we had a, a shooting by a police officer of an unarmed black motorist in Grand Rapids, Patrick uh, Leoa, and the officer uh, has been since charged with second degree murder and his trial is pending. That too was, you know, a flashpoint for the Grand Rapids community, but also just the greater state and nation and the discussion of, of police interactions and with minority communities. And so today I want to explore what MLive is doing internally to look at our practices and how we report these kind of stories and, and everyday crime stories. And uh, I'm happy to have as our guest, uh, the, our editor for the Flint Journal, Roberto Acosta. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Good to have you back, Roberto. And also, uh, what I'm going to say, <laughs> I'm going to use the word or phrase crime reporter, but we're going to get into that a little bit. From Kalamazoo Gazette, Marie Weedmeyer. Good morning, Marie. Good morning. It's nice to be here, John. Yeah, it's great to have you. And I just want to say that in the wake of the shooting in Grand Rapids, first of all, the first thing we do as journalists is jump into action. And you want to you know, be, you want to be break, the breaking news of the shooting. You want to tell people everything we can and the 
24, 48 hours afterwards. But almost immediately, too, we started having internal discussions about the, the right way to depict what was happening, to handle with community outrage on both sides, because there's, you know, uh, reflexive supporters of police actions. And whether our, our coverage was, you know, not just, you know, fair and, you know, and balanced, but whether we were giving accurate depictions of, you know, who did what and what was responsible and, and what was some of the issues at stake were. And concurrently, Marie, you were looking into a seminar that you wanted to take um, with the Pointer Institute, which is a very respected journalism institute in America, about crime. So before we go further into the Grand Rapids case and, and what we did in the wake of that, I want to ask you, uh, Marie, what intrigued you as a police and you know, police slash crime reporter about the Pointer Institute um, seminar and, and what the subject matter of that was going to be and how you wanted to use that? Yeah, so the focus of the training has been looking at what we typically cover for crime coverage and why we do it. Um, and then also making sure when we are writing about a shooting in X neighborhood that it's also a more overall look at this neighborhood that we're not just stopping in every time there's a crime, but we're also showing up when they're having large community events or when there's a um, there's something good happening in the community. And it's also, we've had internal discussions too among, are we going to be covering this crime that is 15, 20 miles outside of our county that maybe a handful of readers live in but we only ever show up if somebody's killed and if that's a fair representation of those communities. And we've been talking about how we cover that and what we want to do moving forward to create, to um, give a more, a better look at these communities. Right. And concurrently, Roberto, my understanding is you lead a weekly discussion of our, we have eight newspapers around the state. So we're covering these eight communities plus the, communities around these communities and also some statewide major crime if it happens somewhere like the oxford shooting say that's that's not one of our newspaper communities but you lead a task force or excuse me a weekly kind of discussion group of the people who cover crime and courts right and so Correct. at the time of you know i think we had some immediate internal just necessary operating decision uh, kind of discussions in the wake of the shooting in grand rapids but also you've been having meetings with with your crime reporters. So I think, you know, where does this all mesh? And I, I don't want to steal your thunder here, but I know that in the wake of that, you, you wanted to use those discussions to try to move forward with discussions about how we can bring, you know, light <laughs> in our crime coverage rather than heat. And so what's happening with that, that group and the task force that you put together in the wake of that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Actually, Marie is part of that as well. Um, you know, we were going through discussions about, obviously, the Leoya incident um, and just kind of breaking down, you know, uh, several different topics, you know, including kind of the use of language, you know, be it uh, what comes from the community, what kind of language we get from police and not making things standard, you know, in terms of the language that we use, um, bringing kind of a uniformity, as Marie mentioned, to our, our coverage. Um, I know being a previous reporter, you know, I would scour through, you know, brief police reports and, you know, they'd have a petty theft kind of thing. But I, I think it's important to shed light on larger topics, you know, that, that impact the whole community when you're covering crime as well. Um, I know there's going to be those one-offs where people are like curious about, you know, 
this car accident that happened in my neighborhood, you know, or, you know, power went out or whatever kind of situations like that. But um, looking at some uniformity, um, also looking at our practices, you know, in terms of the, the covers that we do. I know there was a lot of discussion, you know, when the Patrick Lagoya incident happened. Um, uh, and part of the discussion in the group as well was about headlines, you know, and, and kind of the impact, obviously, the language can have um, in trying to, you know, be as, you know, concise, but also as accurate. And for me, it's always important to be non-sensational as well, you know, when we're covering things and, um, you know, being straightforward with the public, providing the, the best information, you know, in the most concise way we can, in the most accurate way that we can. Um, and that kind of task force and group also, you know, looked a little bit uh, at, you know, some other topics here and there, because um, I know there can be, you know, sensitive topics for the community as well, you know, be it, you know, coverage of LD, LGBTQ, you know, transgender issues as well. So um, I, I think it's important for a news organization to have that type of conversation, you know, not to be stagnant, to see the way of the world and what's happening uh, and, and be, you know, not have it steer our coverage, but, but be, mindful and sensitive where we can to the community because ultimately we're serving the community you know we're serving our readers and we need to do it in the best way that we can right I, you hit on something about the triggers people have and in the wake of the column i wrote in the podcast we had about you know really dialing back the use of mug shots um you know i had a lot of email from uh, more traditional thinking i'll put it readers about you had a crime, there's a criminal there, you know, why won't you show us? Um, and also people who take issue when we work with the nomenclature, the wording around crime, you know, and, and even subtle things about, you know, it's a the police involved shooting um, can sound like he was just walking to the store and it, it just incidentally got, you know, circumstantially walked into a situation when he's a cop who pulled the guy over. Right. So um, as we change the wording of things, I think it's people are sensitive to that and they feel like we're kind of hiding something or we're trying to uh, you know, cut the rough corners off the truth or something. So what what would be your your uh, you and Marie both? I'd like to have a conversation about this. Uh, your take on the power of language and the need to be precise with language in terms of the perceptions that that leaves. I would make the argument that moving away from terms like officer involved shooting actually tells the truth better and provides our readers with a clearer uh, picture of what happened. Because like you said, officer involved shooting can make it sound like, yeah, I just walked onto a scene, but they were, the officer was doing his or her job and pulled a gun and whether or not that was in self-defense, that's something for the prosecutor to decide. But when we uh, frame it as officer-involved shooting, that makes it sound kind of wishy-washy and not actually describing what happened, that an officer shot somebody. Because officer-involved shooting can also sound like an officer was shot. So I think by making using clearer language, we're actually serving our readers better, even if it's a little uncomfortable at first to be confronted with. It almost sounds aggressive at times. And it's mm -hmm. not, it's just it's saying something truthfully, but it's something I think that people, even us reporters have to get used to of not trying to couch what was happening. Yeah, and, uh, and to piggyback off that, um, I think it's, you know, the, the conciseness, um, but also, you know, being factual, like Marie said, you know, if, if it's gonna be wishy-washy um, and kind of 
you know, using that real language as we've talked about before, you know, with readers, um, you know, this is what happened, you know, an officer was, you know, officer shot someone. It's not, you know, casting blame. It's just telling actually what happened. And also the opposite, you know, if an officer is shot, you know, it's being clear with that as well. We're not going to have a story, you know, where an officer is shot and called it an officer involved shooting. You know, we're going to say someone shot a police officer. So I think that has to be, you know, clear as well from the other side. Um, and I think that language and kind of procedure as well, um, this was part of kind of the conversation that we had on the task force too, was, you know, um, when an officer is involved in the shooting, you know, say they shoot someone, there's protocol that goes along with that. You know, they would be placed on leave, be it, you know, administrative unpaid leave or paid leave um, and not, you know, hyping, you know, for lack of a better term, you know, that situation, but being straightforward with our language on that as well. Um, and, and uh, you know, going overboard with it, so. Right, and in the case of uh, Leo was being shot by Officer Christopher Schur, you had four different video angles. There's no way to couch the wording that the video doesn't immediately just render, <laughs> you know, it, it really make, if you, if you try to couch that when uh, the video shows him pulling a gun and shooting him in the back of the head, um, the truth is right in front of you. Now, what was going through Patrick Leoa's mind, what was going through Schur's mind, those are things, you know, and, and all, a lot of the, the investigatory files that we haven't been able to see yet, uh, because there's going to be a trial, um, will shed more light on that. But I mean, the fact is, for generations, newspaper coverage was pretty reflexive, and it kind of re represented the police point of view. They pick what crimes they, um, they pick the people that they arrest. They, you know, the prosecutors pick who they charge, and they send out press releases. And on a quote-unquote slow news day, there's a lot of things that was written by us and others that was called crime coverage that just happened to be not a lot of thought was put into what the bigger picture was, the perspective of crime in a community. And if someone, um, you know, stole diapers out of a party store and we wrote about it, all of a sudden that's a crime story in your community. When a lot of stuff happened, I mean, people's lawnmowers get stolen. We don't write about it. Right. So yeah, if you have a perspective on that, go ahead. Yeah, no, it kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier, you know, in terms of the uh, quote unquote, you know, petty crimes, you know, kind of situations and not just in for me as a reporter too on that side uh, and looking at our coverage moving forward as well. It's not to perpetuate kind of those negative things, you know, as well that are small things, you know, that people see in our community. Um, I know, you know, when we talk about media, you know, quote unquote, that can cover a lot of things, but um, and not kind of having that cycle when I look at it of just negative negativity in the news. I mean, there's a lot of things that happen in our community, such as the topic we're, we're talking about today, but other positive things as well. And if a reader sees, you know, a crime story, crime story, crime story, you know, that might put a perception in their mind about a community. I mean, when I, when I talk about Flint to people, you know, I don't talk about just the crime. I talk about, you know, the people within the community, you know, and the good things and positive things that people are doing. So I think that's important to, to reflect, you know, out there as well. So, um, and just kind of looking in generalities and you talked about, you know, accountability accountability earlier. I think that's important. And when I look at kind of crime coverage, I look at public safety because it can be, you know, police, fire, courts. I think those all kind of fall under that umbrella. Um, and it's important to, you know, deliver the, the, the impactful things that are most impactful for the community. Um, also holding police accountable, you know, is another part of that as well. 
So having that well-rounded out, um, I think is the most important thing when we look at the topic. So I want to, you, you just mentioned a number of things that were on my list to talk about. So it's really well, it was, uh, you put that together well, I want to unpack it a little bit, but Marie, just the word crime and, and crime coverage, which is just second nature to journalists. We call it the crime beat for forever uh, or crime in courts. Um, but broadening the perspective around this and changing the onus from the person who's in the mugshot <laughs> to a broader community perspective, as Roberto's saying, some of the, what are some of the things you're talking about in your in your pointer seminar? Uh, I know because I've seen some of the notes that have come out of it, but uh, the difference between crime and what Roberto called public safety. I think one of the key differences is when you're talking public safety coverage, you're looking at police institutions as a whole, at the criminal justice system as a whole. So with police, you could be looking at their budgets, which is something that public safety implies, but crime coverage doesn't necessarily imply. And then also you're looking at prosecutors' offices and judges and how cases are handled throughout that instead of just this crime happened here, this person was charged, and then when that person was sentenced, we write about it. So public safety, I think, I guess provides a more holistic look at the criminal justice system as a whole, which as Roberto said, goes from when the crime was committed to the police, to the prosecutor's office, to the judges, and all those support systems also that exist to help people as they leave prison and help reintegrate into society and become returning citizens. Right. And then the other part of Roberto was, you know, community and looking at this holistically from a community standpoint, because uh, crime is bad and people who are affected by crime are bad, especially violent crime. I don't want to minimize that sure. in any way, shape or form, but it's just one of a list of things that uh, are, you know, there's other community issues. There's, there's, pollu there's polluted water. You know, there, there are inequities in housing or homeless people. So crime just fits a larger picture of life in a community and the other part of that, and I, this has come through in some of the materials uh, I've read and discussions you're having is solutions-based journalism, whether it is homelessness or, um, you know, there's an interesting story out of Kalamazoo last night about what they're doing with, it sounds odd, but but public defecation and urination yeah. um, being criminalized because, you know, if you do that, then you're always going after the same people, making them criminals for something that the Kalamazoo unanimously decided their city commission that that's not a crime. That's a social problem. So talk a little bit about broadening the scope of of looking at the community based. Right. And um, in not just a face of a criminal or a face of somebody who, who the police say committed a crime. Yeah. Um, and kind of looking at our community, um, there's been discussions kind of at the, the county jail level. There was a, a program started called Ignite, which, you know, in some places have already done this, but, you know, has a uh, provides classes for people in in the county jail currently. So when they get out, you know, they will and they are connected with an employer. So they have a job when they get out of jail. That's kind of a, a community feel to it. Um, uh, some of the things that Marie mentioned as well, you know, are important. Um, also looking at um, the, the community itself. I mean, we have several groups here in Flint that, that are kind of quote unquote peacekeepers, you know, or patrol neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. I think it's important to be reflective on that as well. You know, I mean, we can talk about crimes and then we go through the, the court system 
Um, you know, and we we talk about that as well. You know, the court system itself. You know, we've had discussion about one person grand juries of late and kind of how the system works. You know, and that's connected to crimes. But it was also connected to the water crisis. There was a recent state supreme court decision made on that, but that's also impacted. And we had a separate story on. I think there was more than three dozen cases involving you know eighty plus suspects that our crime reporter here, Joey Oliver, did a story on. So it, it's looking at those you know, kind of day-to-day -day crimes because people want to know about those, like I said earlier, but those intangibles in between as well that that is important to flush out our full coverage and not just, oh, <laughs> you know, not just, um, you know, doing crime story, crime story, car crash, you know, shooting to, to get clicks, but, you know, providing impactful, important information and you know, guidance to people that unfortunately also may have to go through the criminal justice system, um, you know, and, and informing them fully of, you know, how, you know, how, how that works as well. I think that's important too. Um, not that we're, you know, a guide or an instruction manual for people, but if someone unfortunately has to go through that, you know, they should know, you know, how to handle that as well. So. What does that discussion look like, Marie, in your in your pointer seminars and what's happening across the country with that? I think one of the big drivers of a lot of this discussion right now is that 20 years ago, writing a story and naming somebody for stealing diapers would not result in a Google result that follows somebody for the rest of their lives. It'd be buried in the newspaper archives somewhere deep in a library somewhere. So now we're looking at something, you write about some, somebody being charged with something and that follows them forever, whether or not they're convicted, whether or not it was like a petty crime, like we've talked about, like stealing diapers. So that's, I think, one of the main drivers behind why we're having this discussion right now is that it's not fair to people to have that kind of thing out there on the internet forever. And that's a discussion within a lot of newsrooms too about how do we handle this and that shapes how we, what crimes we report on, because it's, that makes a huge difference. And I want to stop for a second and point out, we have not stopped running mugshots, right? We, we make exceptions and we, we, we carefully thought this through and discussed what would those exceptions be. But like, if you have a dangerous criminal on the loose and you need to know what it, the person looks like, if, uh, when uh, ex-Governor Snyder was charged in the Flint water cases, he's a high-profile public person. Uh, we feel like those people already are in the public eye, and it's it, it's warranted in those situations. We had a situation, in, I believe it was Kalamazoo last week, where like 10 people broke into a store and did a mob theft. I mean, they just cleaned the shelves and took off running, and the security camera video uh, and we felt that it's, you know, those, it's not the first time that crime happened is if it can help citizens be prepared or help the police in stopping these sort of things. So I'm not going to say we take a totally black and white approach and we never, ever do something. What we do, what I think this is all about is being more thoughtful, um, thinking through the repercussions of the, the, the power of our reporting has um, not just on individuals, but on a in the community's mind, perception of itself and, and of groups of people. And so I think being more thoughtful is uh, just like a its own reward. I think it's good in anything we do here in journalism. Yeah, Roberto. And if I could, John, um, I just kind of wanted to make the point, and I thought it was very important, you know, when we first jumped on that Marie mentioned, um, and you mentioned community, and it's come up a lot, I, I think as news organizations too, um, you know, we're, we're doing a disservice if we just go into a neighborhood 
when a bad situation happens. Um, you know, it, it may not get, you know, a ton of readership, but at the same time, you know, it's covering those communities where these things are happening. And, um, you know, it's not our job to, uh, to be honest, to, to shed a positive light on everything. But if there are people within those neighborhoods, you know, that we find out about, you know, a situation going on, you know, it, it's reaching back out to them, you know, and, and trying to talk to them and connect, you know, with what's positive in their neighborhood, or if there's other issues going on at the same time, you know, be it, you know, you know, there's garbage collecting, you know, down the street, or, um, you know, they're having issues, you know, unfortunately in Flint, you know, with their water, and if that's continuing, I know there's discussions in Flint too about, you know, yard, you know, repairs that have happened from the pipe replacements. So I, I thought that was a very impactful, important point that Marie just wanted to, to toss that out there as well, that, you know, connecting with those neighborhoods and maintaining the relationships is, is very important as well, you know, after a situation happens too. And that's something I think we're all striving as an organization to, you know, have a, a closer, tighter connection with the community too. Because ultimately, like I said before, you know, we, we serve our readers and it's important to, to cast a light in both ways. I mean, it's, we don't live in a world, you know, that's static and hunky-dory every day and sunshine and rainbows, but, um, you know, when we can and, and show those positive lights, we need to as well. A really good point because historically journal, the best journalism does that, you know, it doesn't say, oh, you know, little children are dying in factories, you know, 120 years ago, reporters went undercover into a factory and depicted what was happening and changed child labor laws in America. It's, it's, it's looking for, it doesn't stand back in, in reporting on the aftermath of a bad event, right? It, yeah. it is helping people see the problem in a different light so it can be solved or there can be a community response to a solution. And, you know, some things like tornadoes hit a town, we just cover that in, in the aftermath. But when it's a, when it's an ongoing social ill, we have an obligation as journalists to broaden the scope and, and not narrow it and, and become part of the solution. Absolutely. So the last thing, and we were getting down to the last few minutes of this behind the headlines, but I think this is a really sensitive one. And this is one that fuels a lot of the letters or what I hear from readers, but one of the tenets, it appears, of your task force and, Marie, what you're looking at with the Pointer Institute group you're with, it's just not, for lack of a better phrase, don't take police at their word. Be a little more skeptical of what police say. And I think when some of our listeners hear that, they're, they're going to, I mean, they, there's a certain amount of just trust and authority, especially police authority in America. So why don't you just talk a little bit about that? And you, know, you don't have to candy coat it, but you know the, we are supposed to be skeptical anyways as journalists and ask questions. But what does that mean when you say don't take, you know, just don't take them at their word or be a little more skeptical? What does that mean practically in, in how we do our, our work around public safety reporting? So for report, reporters out at scenes, that usually means talking to other people there who might have witnessed a crime happen or might have something to say about what they've seen um because like you said sometimes there's not always the full truth that comes out right away from police whether it's intentional or not if you look at the texas school shooting at first police gave out one story and now we've had weeks and weeks of basically what they said at first was not accurate and was not truthful so i think that's one of those things that us as reporters need to just be um that we know about and then also to talk to other people and community members to try and get a fuller picture instead of just saying police said so and I think one thing that 
comes up a lot when I've talked to people about this is, does this mean we're going to stop covering homicides or stop writing about that? And that's not at all the case. It is, we're still going to write about homicides. And usually when that happens, police are our first and probably best resource at the time. That means we follow up and try and talk to family or friends or neighbors who may have seen something to provide a fuller picture of what's happened. Yeah. And coming off that too, I, I think that's an important part, you know, talking to the family, you know, of a homicide victim, but kind of in the, in the wake of the Grand Rapids shooting, um, it's also digging a little deeper in terms of, you know, doing FOIA work, you know, looking at personnel files, um, you know, any previous incidents, you know, this officer may have had, I know we had stories as well on the background of the officer and also the, the victim in the incident. Um, and, uh, we to, to look at kind of a case we had here, because um, that's just kind of how I operate. Um, you know, we had a uh, got a tip about a sheriff's de deputy that was involved in a crash. Turns out, you know, it was a drunk driving incident. They were in, you know, a sheriff's vehicle, um, kind of an undercover vehicle. But, um, you know, we did FOIA work on that, you know, get the police report. You know, we will sometimes. Uh, as we use the video in the Leoya incident, you know, use that video as well. And that's another discussion, you know, in terms of how much we show or not. Um, but I, I think we live in a world today, too, where, you know, we can't hold back. I mean, like you mentioned earlier, John, people saw the video, you know, they, they saw the George Floyd video. Mm -hmm. um, it's right there. It's visceral. It's real. It's in your face. And, you know, we're we're not doing our job if, if we don't reflect that, you know, when people see it. Um, and, and being honest and open with people. So uh, I, I think there's a lot of facets like Marie, you know, the, the personal, but also kind of doing our due diligence and, and reporting and digging a little deeper, uh, as you mentioned before, to, to get that full coverage of an incident to happen, especially if it's a sensitive, you know, issue that's taking place. Right. And I'm gonna be honest, we could go another two hours on this, but there's so many facets <laughs> to this. I guess tell uh, our readers and listeners that our crime coverage, which is excellent around the state, it accounts for probably about 30, a third of all of our readership um, of all topics. And that includes, you know, politics and weather and pro sports and everything. But uh, Marie and, and our other crime writers are among the most read uh, uh, reporters we have in the entire company. That just shows the huge public interest that is in this topic and, and, and in safety in their communities. But also it, it, turns the light back around on us and, and underscores how important it is that we do this thoughtfully and that we do this in a way that serves the community and the best interests of the community. And I, that for that, I'm grateful that you're having those conversations, Roberto, you're leading the task force, and, and Marie, your willingness to jump in and, and be a part of these some of these progressive approaches to journalism around crime. So on behalf of them live, I thank you and also thank you for both being with us today on Behind the Headlines. Thank you for having us. Thanks again. Appreciate it. <laughs> you guys were great, by the way. It's a really, oh. good, really good discussion. And there's so much more we could have gotten into. I was going to go into like, I mean, we have traffic scanner chasers and, you know, there's everything else. You know, <laughs> people. Well, I would, we could do a whole two hours. On oh. This this is the topic I'd put out there. This is the number one thing that the reader said in the wake of Leoa being shot. Why did he run if he wasn't, they didn't do anything wrong? Why didn't he just comply? Just comply. We could do a whole series oh. 
a podcast on just comply and all the underlying social things and you know oh, yeah, yeah. poverty and distrust of police and why don't why is there a shooting in Saginaw where a hundred people see what happened and no one will talk to the police, yeah. right? Because that's cultural. That goes beyond because of lack of trust. These marginalized oh. communities. So yeah. and we go into police procedure, you know, with the shooting, you know, and how awful that was in the Leoy incident. So yeah, exactly. So thank you guys very, very much. Very important topic and a, a great discussion. Thank you, Eric. And there they go. A huge thanks to Marie and Roberto. And as always, if you like what John and I are doing, like, comment, and share wherever you get your podcasts. Till next week, he is John Heiner. I am Eric Hulkerin, and this is Behind the Headlines.